0: Hi, everybody. It's James Rudd here with The Heart Podcast. Something a bit different this week. Today, the hosting is going to be done by social media intern at heart, Dr. Andrew Perry. Andrew had the chance to catch up with Dr. Martha Gulati from the University of Arizona and talk all about the 2021 AHA and ACC chest pain guidelines. I hope you enjoyed the show.
1: Hi, my name is Dr. Martha Galati, and I'm the chair of the chest pain guidelines, as well as the president-elect of the American Society for Preventive Cardiology.
0: Thank you so much for meeting with me today. We are basically following up after the American Heart Meeting, and I wanted to talk with you about the recently published chest pain guidelines from the American Heart Association and the American College of Cardiology. Let's just jump right into the discussion. So I remember a couple of years ago when the ischemia trial was published, there were a lot of discussions going around at that same time where many clinicians and some people were basically simplifying their approach or talking about simplifying their approach to patients with stable coronary disease. Frequently, I heard a sentiment like this, quote, I just need to rule out high-risk disease, meaning left main disease or multivessel disease. And then if the patient doesn't have it, I can treat them medically. And that led many people to anticipate and postulate, thinking that when chest pain guidelines were updated, that coronary CTA, you know, a non-invasive approach to anatomic assessments of coronary disease would take a more prominent role in the diagnostic recommendations for uh, for that population. So talking about that and the new updated guidelines, what are your thoughts about coronary CTA and recognizing that that's been a lot of the buzz around these guidelines and how that modality is now thought and used in our current evaluation of patients with chest pain.
1: Yeah, I think those are, that's a great point. And ischemia the study ischemia uh, really did have a huge influence on these chest pain guidelines because it's a contemporary study. And in the light of ischemia, um, again, the study (laughs) we you know, we really need to be able to incorporate these contemporary research studies into what we're doing. And I think as particularly in the United States, you know, coronary CT has had a bit of a delay compared to our European counterparts in terms of its use. And our guidelines have lagged. We have stable ischemic heart disease guidelines. They were published last in 2012 with a minor update in 2014 but we've had nothing since then. And if you look at the literature, the literature has exploded in terms of coronary CT, but also other imaging modalities, things like cardiac MR, PET scanning. I mean, all of it has, has exploded in this last decade. And we don't have someplace that sort of takes all that information and puts it into perspective. But I think like, you know, the one thing that I think people should be clear on is what was the ischemia study doing? I mean, it was really, what the purpose was, was to test, the the randomization was to test an invasive strategy versus a conservative strategy. Mm -hmm. And I just don't want anyone to think that it was testing how we diagnose ischemia. So I think that that's also very important because I think people often think, and I've heard this out there, that somehow the chest pain guidelines, you know, have made coronary CT, the the testing of choice. And in fact, that's not really true. If you look at our recommendations, whether we're talking about acute chest pain, but more about stable ischemic heart disease, you can see that we give choices to people. And the class one recommendations are actually coronary CTA, but also the stress testing modalities that are more well established in our community. So I think that that really makes it clear for stable chest pain. We're not saying that one is better. And in fact, we make a big point about this in our guidelines is the first thing about why you choose anything anyway, obviously when you have someone with symptoms, but then the first thing you say is what do I have available? what's our local expertise, because that always will matter. And anybody practicing knows that, you know, when we, if something they can't get, or that is, you know, there's a higher level of expertise, they're going to use that. And we want people to have that freedom to use what's in their backyard. I think that obviously, you've got to take into account the patient that's in front of you and the contraindications to certain imaging modalities. And also, Involve the patient as well talk about whether you know whether you're talking about radiation exposure, which is obviously relevant for a coronary CT but also for things like nuclear testing. You know that patients be aware of that and that they're part of the shared decision making when we choose a test, I think functional testing, though, is not dead. In fact, if anyone uh, knows my early work, my early work was all on exercise testing. And ex- when you're able to get a patient specifically to exercise, there's a lot of important information we can get, whether it has uh, imaging. As part of it or not, but often it does have imaging as part of it, and we need to use that information. And it really depends on the patient in front of you because you're, you know, depending on what their presenting problem is and other parts of their history that you're going to retrieve. If you're, for example, if you're suspicious for anoka, our guidelines do actually touch on anoka, and you might use a different type of imaging, but with some functional testing on top of that, and you have that option. So I think, I think there's a lot of nuances to the patient in front of you and, and the question that you're trying to answer. And of course, driving all of this is both their history and their physical because there's things we all know if you hear something on physical exam for example a cardiac murmur you're going to choose perhaps a stress echo even if you you're you're interested in whether there's ischemia or not but you might be also asking yourself is there a valve problem because i heard this murmur as well and and so i'm able to get this information from the right test so I don't think anybody loses, if you will, in this um, chest pain guidelines, because what we did is we tried to weigh the evidence, but we all wanted to make the evidence contemporary. So sorry if that's a bit of a long-winded answer. Um, and if you want any specific points to dive into, please let me know.
0: Oh well, yeah, maybe let's just unpack a couple of things in there. You know, when I think about both, you know, the strategy of anatomic testing versus functional testing. I, th- I think there's advantages to both of them and perhaps you could comment on both of these. I think one thing that you highlighted there was in terms of functional testing, I think about being able to exercise the patient and then assessing their response and how many mets can they produce and whatnot. And the, the powerful information that that produces. On the other hand, then with anatomic testing, you know I can look for non-obstructive coronary disease and that can then prompt me to then think about statin uh, therapies or other therapies to help, you know, mitigate atherosclerosis, which they're, they're kind of separate bits of information that I don't get from the other. You know, I get one from anatomic testing, the other from functional testing. I don't know what thoughts are at home. Unpack that a little bit more.
1: Yeah. I, I think, you know, functional testing absolutely has a role. I, I think, you know, the, one of the things you get, from functional testing is risk stratification. You get to tailor your approach if you are going to go and do revascularization. So, you know, seeing the area of ischemia can help make a decision if there's more than single vessel disease, which vessel maybe you wanna target. You know, it also can be reassurance too, when you get functional testing. I mean, if you don't reproduce ischemia, um, you don't reproduce the patient's symptoms. Sometimes that is why you do it because a patient will say, every time I do this activity, I'm having symptoms. Well, then let's, let's try to find out what that is. And I think that's where the exercise part of it is incredibly valuable. And I think, you know, the the prognostic value of exercise testing cannot be understated. There's a lot of information that comes from that in addition to reassuring the patient too about their activity level or Showing that what the patient is saying is actually clearly occurring at that time. So, but I think the prognostic value can be incredibly helpful. And I, I think that that is information that we often overlook. I think, I think people, the way that often I have, um, you know, sometimes fellows will report to me the stress test results and they'll just say there was ischemia or there wasn't, or they might quantify the isch- ischemia for me, but then if they know me then they have to go back and tell me you know what was the heart rate response what was you know how long did they exercise for because even a negative study when they don't go for very long to me that wasn't a very valuable test and so then maybe we need to do a different test so i really think that there's a role for stress testing and and it's not going anywhere for the anatomic testing I think that it is valuable. I think that nobody can argue with the information that we get um, from anatomical testing for like you said, I mean, first of all, though the big drive is that low risk patients, perhaps, you know, that might be the right group that, you know, when you, you know that they're in a certain age bracket or that they're less likely to have obstructive coronary disease, but they're having symptoms and you want to know what's going on, then coronary CTA can be incredibly valuable. And, you know, we have studies like the Scott Hart study for just as an example, where, you know, a lot of people, you know, said, how did Scott Hart show that just by getting an anatomic test, they it showed an improvement in outcomes? Well, the reason it wasn't so much that the magic of an anatomic test did anything, but having that information, what we saw is that the patients ended up getting more guideline directed care, which is what you were driving at. That having that information really can change how, not the patient per se, but how the physicians practice when they see something, they realize that this is a person now that I have to, you know, lower the LDL. This is a patient that I have to do more. I have to counsel on lifestyle. And whatever the the prescription that we give the patient is, we saw clearly in Scott Hart, for example, was done more aggressively than patients that got the usual standard of care. And I think we can't underestimate that seeing is believing. And I think that that is something, you know, we even... You know, even coronary artery calcium, even for low risk patients, we suggested it as a 2A option, not that you have to do it in everyone but that you might do that because it might help you with a patient that is having symptoms, but you know, you know, they're low risk. They don't need any additional testing, but you want to help them in, in terms of their future risk because they're, you know, they might have already risk factors present. That's why they're scared about their symptoms or concerned about their symptoms. And that can help us as well. So, um, I, you know, I think that this is how we personalize it for the patient in front of us, too, to some degree, because there's a lot of nuances in the patient in front of us. They might have had previous testing. They may have even had a previous cath or previous other imaging, and you should take that into account when you're trying to decide what's the right test now. You know, who should I, you know, should I do the exact same test as I did before, or should I consider a different approach?
0: this sounds maybe more of a philosophical question, but talking about the, should we even approach this topic or area thinking about what's my default test of choice? Should I even, when a patient approaches me and I'm bidding them in my mind of, oh, they have stable coronary disease and they have stable ischemic heart disease, or this is an acute presentation, should I even be thinking, you know, what's my default test of choice? Because I'm hearing a lot from you about patient-specific factors, even institutional level factors that can and probably should sway you know, which modality where I'm going down.
1: Yeah, it's hard because again, a patient with different symptoms or different presentation, different number of risk factors or different story might drive you to use a different test. You might say, well, you know, this is always reproducible with activity. I'm going to get a functional test. I'm going to, you know, work with this patient. It might be an older patient. In older patients, we know that functional testing is much better than anatomic testing because the risk for obstructive coronary disease is greater. So, you know, I think that for each of our patients, we're gonna to have to tailor it. But of course, if we're at a place that has only one choice, yes, then you can quickly narrow it down. Most places have either one or two choices. You know, I, I think, you know, most places actually, I would say have perhaps stress echo and our stress nuclear technology, where the, the area and the gap that I think we definitely filled in with the chest pain guidelines was, Cardiac MR, um, which is becoming more available at, at different institutions, and coronary CTA. So, I mean, that those are what we have, you know, not at every institution or available easily. Um, and I think that that, you know, it was interesting writing these guidelines, I will say there are one of our colleagues was from the UK, and he's at a center that does a lot of cardiac MR. And in fact, they do stress cardiac MR in the emergency room. And there's maybe a few places in the United States that have that, but it's very infrequent. And so it was interesting hearing it from his perspective, and that's actually how we decided to, to write it. We said, let's not worry about availability then, if you have it available, but we don't. Let's not, availability is an overarching, like you're gonna use what's available. But if the evidence is strong, then you know let's let's let the evidence drive the recommendation. So, like some of the newer studies like MR informed, I don't know if they call it MR informed, but I call it MR informed. And that study was, you know, compared uh, cardiac MR to uh, cath guided with FFR in the cath lab and showed, you know, just to how they were equally um, prognostic and the patients did equally well using the cardiac MRI information versus the cath information, a great study, you know, like these are the kind of studies that we're looking at now and we want to use these contemporary literature to drive our guidelines, but we are absolutely aware that not every institution has a a cardiac MR for that matter. So, um, and available maybe in their, emergency room or availability in terms of a timely manner. And so those are things that we every institution is going to know, and it's going to drive their decision. Ultimately, if it takes them a long time to get booked in, and they have a question about a patient that needs the answer in a time, you know, in a timely manner. And I think that's the thing is that chest pain, even when it's stable, we still patients need answers. So we're always going to Use those different variables as well to drive what we do. Maybe one day we'll have all of them available at every institution, but you know, it, we even you can see from our recommendations about PET, we're very realistic. PET is very hard to come by in the United States. You know, it, it's not available everywhere. Maybe academic institutions we think they are, um, but then you get out in the real world, and they're not. And Again, but great information you can get from them. And we didn't want to minimize that or hide that information. So it's it's in there. It's in our guidelines in that way with the accepting notion that, you know, use what's at your place and um, use, uh, you know, use the expertise that's in your in your house.
0: Excellent. I love it. That's a great discussion about all the different modalities and how they fit in. Maybe we'll shift topics now thinking about the, looking at the new guidelines, so many parts that we could talk about. I think one that stood out to me was the, I'll call it the updated diamond Forester tables. So we had the old diamond Forester plots that I think all of us cut our teeth on. And now it's just, they they look all different. Like everything changed. your comments there, thoughts, like how, how did that all transpire?
1: Yeah, I don't even think we can call it the diamond forester anymore, but you're right. We we definitely all, um, you're right, worked with uh, that idea and that concept. I, I think, you know, we've all said about that was that, Diamond Forrester, first of all, didn't enroll. There was no women actually included in that initial plot. So it really made it hard to apply to over half the population. And the symptom, you know, the things have evolved over time. So having, and, and then the other thing that's evolved that really drove the figure that you're talking about from those researchers is that now we are, in the United States, we test a lot of patients meaning that we we do testing on low-risk patients for many reasons. There, there There's many reasons that we do this and, and that's another discussion. But because of that, you know, it's not like back, if you look back historically, when we were taking patients and taking them to the cath lab, they had a higher incidence of obstructive coronary disease because we were very selective. First of all, our technologies were limited in terms of our diagnostic technologies. You know, not everyone was doing cath. We saw a trend we had more testing, um, more sensitive diagnostic testing and more availability of cath lab. We were finding less obstructive disease. So there was a lot of patients going to the cath lab and they weren't getting stents. And we all know at different institutions where we might work, there's a lot of diagnostic tests, but not uh, diagnostic caths, I should say, but they aren't necessarily needing an intervention. Cause we're, you know, there's a lot of things that go into why we do the tests that we do. So, what this uh, image that you're referring to if we can call it the new diamond forest or from uh, Juarez, or, I'm going to ruin the name, Orozoco, I think might be the name, and this was published in 2019. what they did very nicely, they stratified by, you know, the, the pretest probability of obstructive coronary disease in symptomatic patients. So again, you could still have non obstructive coronary disease. And but we're talking about who are the people that would definitely need to go to the cath. And what we found is that for most people, they would be considered in the low to intermediate risk, the only group, in fact, even, all women actually in this study were in the Low to intermediate risk group. But the only people that entered into the high risk was actually men over the age of 70 who had a high, you know, more than 50% pretest probability of obstructive coronary disease. Again, disease of aging, but again, a disease of aging that we see more frequently in men and we know in women. They're less likely to have obstructive coronary disease, so it's less likely. But based on those pretest probabilities is how we also choose what we're going to do. And we know age is a big factor. Sex is a big factor. But we also need to admit that obstructive coronary disease isn't the only thing we're hunting for. So I, I do want people to take that with a grain of salt, just like with Diamond Forester, We were saying, what's the risk of obstructive disease. So if you need To just know if there's disease, you know, that might drive you differently. But that was our point is that younger people, you know, you might decide that you have a this person in front of me has a lower probability of obstructive coronary disease. So maybe anatomic testing is my testing of choice in this person, versus this is somebody with multiple risk factors, older. I'm going to use functional testing in this person. Uh, and, and Obviously, there's variabilities and there's other things that are going to influence your pattern. But I do think that using this is it's much more contemporary, you know, both in terms of what we're seeing right now, rather than using something that was developed many decades before. And we've all had problems. I'm sure people complain about Diamond forester, but we've been using it for quite a long time.
0: Yeah, no, I think it's uh, I think it's great information. I'm I'm glad that they had uh, done that study. So super helpful. I think in our last little bit, I want to make sure that we hit on the uh, you know, the most novel thing. You know, you know, maybe a little tongue in cheek there about the guidelines. You know, the use of a mnemonic in the uh, in the guidelines. I, I dare say that's a first for the American College of Cardiology and the American Heart Association. So please walk us through it. The uh, the chest pains.
1: So the mnemonic, I'm I'm not convinced that anybody but myself will remember it, but um, we came up with it as a way to just sort of make a play both on the word chest pain but use our top 10. We're, we're now through the American Heart Association and the American College of Cardiology when we have guidelines. Um, since the lipid guidelines came out, that was the first one that did a top 10. And we found that that was a great way of communicating the highlights. So we were told write our top 10 and the way we chose to write our top 10 was using that mnemonic because heaven forbid, we wouldn't be considered cardiologists if we didn't somehow try to make put another acronym into our world. But the point was just a great way to just summarize it. But again, I'm not expecting anybody to memorize it necessarily. It was just a way for us to put our story together. Because you usually do these at the end when you're finished writing them and when you're ready to present it to the world. So the the C is really, uh, stands for, you know, basically it's chest pains with an S because we needed 10 points um, but the c is for chest pain is more than pain in the chest and you know that that idea came out really early on to our writing was that you know we understood that we were assigned with this topic chest pain but immediately the first conversation it was is hey, it's, it's more than just chest pain. And so we, we wanted to make it clear that we know our patients describe it in many different ways and we need to be aware of it. We gave probabilities of ischemia based on symptoms so that people could talk about the symptoms that patients have and whether they thought they were low risk of ischemia or high risk of ischemia. And so we laid that out. Our H will stand for high sensitivity troponins, which is the, biomarker that we recommend being used now. We actually gave a class three recommendation towards CKMB and myoglobin, older biomarkers that we don't feel should be used. They're not beneficial to really diagnose an acute myocardial infarction. The E stands for getting early care. So seek care early for acute symptoms. And that's somewhat self-explanatory. The S stands for share the decision-making, and that has to do with the whole shared decision-making that is a core component. The patient is a core component of these guidelines. And really we we wanted to make it clear that we actually are one guideline that actually has randomized control trials related to shared decision making in low risk patients. That when low risk patients understand that they're low risk and we use these patient decision tools, they are better able to choose what to do next when we've effectively communicated risk, and we actually, it seemed to reduce unnecessary testing in these randomized control trials. And because patients would often choose, okay, I don't need additional testing. So we need more research on shared decision-making in general, but I'm happy that we have it for our For our guidelines, the T stands for testing is not routinely needed in low risk patients, and I think that's a big game changer because it really, in the past, really the emergency department often felt, you know, that they had to test patients. And now we've given them, if they use a risk score, they put them in the low risk category. You don't need to routinely test them and you can defer testing and let a cardiologist maybe at an outpatient make a decision. The P stands for pathways. It's really to use our clinical decision pathways to stratify patients into their appropriate risk categories. The A stands for the accompanying symptoms. And that's really specific to women that You know, we know women actually report chest pain or chest pressure, the classic symptoms of ischemia, as often as men. In fact, the contemporary literature suggests 90% of men and women both experience it, but the difference between women versus men is women report three or more additional symptoms. And so we don't want to get lost in the accompanying symptoms, but understand that they come with women and to also explore further. We're hoping that by putting that, we'll start narrowing the gap in care because we know there's a huge gap in care of women. Um, and lack of identification of women at risk. Our I stands for identifying patients who are most likely to benefit of further testing. The things that you and I were already talking about, those intermediate risk patients, what should we do? What tests should we use in them? And if you need to use added testing. And then the N stands for non-cardiac is in and atypical is out. We want people to stop using the word atypical because this, this was misused specifically in women. And it really, gives the wrong uh, message because typically in medicine, the way atypical is used is to really say that it's benign rather than a different way of presenting. So we'd rather you use, you know, cardiac, non-cardiac, or possibly cardiac rather than labeling things as atypical. And then the S stands for structured risk assessment should be used. And that really is, um, you know, the whole point of the guidelines is to give people pathways, we will have an app that's coming out that people will be able to use and download um, in the emergency department or also in their office setting to help them make choices. So all that long winded uh, letters talk was spelling out chest pains. And uh, those are our top 10 messages as well.
0: I think that's an excellent summary. I I appreciate all of your time and your thoughts. Uh, Dr. Gulati, it's been wonderful to speak with you. Any other closing comments or thoughts about uh, the guidelines or the American Heart meeting?
1: No, I think it's just great that we have new contemporary guidelines out using our, you know, all, all the new literature that is emerging. And I think that that is really going to change things change our practice I think more and by following the guidelines again guidelines are there to set a structure for us but it isn't you know it people should never lose sight of who's in front of us and what we work with to help us make our decisions
0: beautiful Well, again thank you so much
1: thank you Andrew it's my pleasure to be here